Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Um, I, you know, when I started this show years ago at this point, I'm kind of losing track. I think my initial fear was like, what if I run out of people to talk to? Um, but thankfully, the world is large and there's a lot of really interesting Orthodox Jews out there. Um, and I think what, what I love about what we do at Jew in the City is that we have people confront their biases of what they think Orthodox Jews can do, do, do. There's sort of a media narrative and all sorts of things about Orthodox Jews as seclusive and closed off and closed-minded and not doing anything and not having fun and not leading meaningful lives. And we show all the flip sides of that. And so we often show here uh, people, you know, having out-of-the-box uh, hobbies or careers or interests. Um, but one thing that I think has come up in the news a lot in the last couple of years um, are some of the challenges between the Orthodox and Black community. Um, we've seen it with, you know, uh, frequent attacks, um, which is obviously, you know, a terrifying thing living around the, the New York area. Um, and I think, I think the media loves to kind of um, amplify the negativity and the discord and rarely looks for opportunities to show um, connection and warmth and bonds. And that's actually what human hearts are looking for. We're looking for those points of commonality. Um, and we're so thrilled uh, to introduce our guest today, uh, Rifki Silberstein Greenbaum, um, who works uh, in a school within the black community um, and has a really special story that has a tragic piece, but I think ultimately, I hope a hopeful piece for you all. Uh, Rifki, thank you so much for, for uh, joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on here today. I appreciate it. So uh, just to give a little bit of a background of where Rifki is now, she's uh, an assistant principal at Erasmus Hall um, and, you know, has been working in the public schools with a, you know, a large percentage of Black students for many years now. But before we go to where you are today, take our listeners back to where you started out. Um, what was your Jewish background growing up? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I was actually born in Lakewood, New Jersey, um, about 40 years ago. My father was learning back then in Lakewood um, full time. And um, and then, you know, my parents, after a number of years, we moved first to Borough Park and then to Flatbush. So I grew up going to Base Yaakov's schools, um, first in Flatbush for elementary school and then high school, um, I went to Barra Park. So I grew up in a very sheltered community, you know, um, my parents, their, um, their, um, their parents came from Europe. And um, just, you know, um, go, going to going to Basiakos, going to summer camps upstate in the mountains, and just living a very enclosed life. Um, and just, you know, in tune to just enclosed and circulated with um, my friends that I went to school with and, you know, what I, what I knew. And um, I, um, after high school, I went to Turo College for a semester. I was at that point in time studying to become an actuary. That's what I was interested in. I was interested in mathematics. And after a semester at Turo, I just felt that it wasn't the best 
place for me to pursue my degree and what I wanted to accomplish in life. So that's when I transferred over to Brooklyn College. And when I transferred over to Brooklyn College, it was a concern. Um, my parents really, they wanted me to stay in a, in a program such as Tarot, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, separated, it was all females and they just, they just wanted to, I guess, keep me a little bit more sheltered. Um, but, you know, as a family, we decided it would be best, you know, for my future career to, you know, go to Brooklyn College and attend that that school and the opportunities it would offer there. So that is where I went. And um, I was, I got married at a young age. I was just turning 20 when I got married. I went through the whole process of, you know, matchmaking, shidduch dating. Um, and I went through that process. And then, you know, a year after I, a year after I got married, I had my first child. Um, and, uh, and then I moved out, um, a number of years after living in Flatbush, we moved out to Farakaway. So I live in Farakaway now, you know, my husband's part of, we're very, very integral part of the community. Um, we dive in at the Young Israel in Bayswater and we're part of different, different things in the community. I also do on the side, I do some Shadduchim, I, you know, made a number, um, and which is matchmaking. And, uh, we just start involved in different parts of our community. But overall, growing up, like I said before, I grew up in a very mainstream, um, orthodox lifestyle, in more, more sheltered. So it's, and it's, you know, as my um, understanding of the different groups and cultural uh, pieces come together, um, I've, you know, tried to explain through our platform, just kind of what some of the outer trappings mean. But what I learned is even the further I go down this road, I continue to sharpen my knowledge. Years ago when I was in seminary, I met my first Beis Yaakov friend who grew up in Flatbush. And she tried explaining to me that Beis Yaakov is different than yeshivish. And she kind of called it Balabatish. And I kind of found it confusing. And I guess I guess now I'm starting to understand it more. But at the end of the day, there's still um, you know what we call ultra-Orthodox, which people don't always like that term. And yet I feel like it's important to use the word so people understand that it can be used for the good as well, since the media only generally uses it for the bad. or ultra-Orthodox or um, possibly calling it Haredi instead, although that's also not always such a perfect word to describe um, the American community, but essentially black hat can mean uh, several different things, whether it's a black hat due to being Hasidic, due to being yeshivish, or possibly sort of Beis Yaakov, Balabatish, sort of culturally Haredi or ultra-Orthodox. So you found yourself not modern orthodoxy or your culture was more in this, you know, kind of like black hat umbrella world. And I, the reason that I talk about sort of the outer trappings of this so people understand is because again and again, we see only the association with like the black hat world as negative, inclus uh, you know, inclusive, um, sort of keeping away from the rest of the world. And I think it's so important that, you know, we, we broaden people's understanding. So you went to, um, Brooklyn College, did you study education there? Because you, you found yourself in education later. Is that where you decided to study education? So about, about a year or a year and a half into my college experience, I, um, I, it came across that a neighbor, a neighbor of ours had a granddaughter who needed some, some help with math. And I was majoring in math. I'm sorry, I was majoring, actuarial requires a lot of math courses. So I ended up going and working with her. And I felt that that, you know, was, I felt that was my calling. I felt very comfortable. And I really enjoyed the experience I had working with the, working with the, the student that I was tutoring 
And I, I made a decision, you know, that I felt that it was appropriate for me to change career paths and go into education. So I studied education at Brooklyn College, education and mathematics. And I received a degree to teach high school mathematics. And so were you always in um, public schools or did you, like, what, what did you imagine your teaching degree would be used for? Were you planning to go to Jewish schools, public schools, kind of what was the initial vision and did that continue? Well, um, I worked in both worlds. I worked in the yeshiva world. I've worked in, when I started, when I was still in school, I got a job at a girls high school in Brooklyn. I was there for a year. And, um, and then I went into public school and then I have twins. So I took some time off and during that time, I worked in a boys junior high school in my local area. So I've been, I've been in both worlds. Um, and initially when I was going for my degree, I was very young. So I thought I would just be a stay at home mother. And I was just, you know, having a backup plan, but uh, apparently Hashem had other and better plans. And that, that, that was, that was that. So um, what was it like you, you know, Again, we talked about sort of degree of insularity. So I guess sort of the growing up Black Hat or Beis Yaakov is probably the most open part of maybe the Black Hat world, but still pretty sheltered. Um, what was that like um, starting to work? Did you immediately work in the Black community or um, just more of a diverse, um, you know, non-Jewish community when you went to public school? So I started off, my first job was in um, Prospect Heights. It was 2003, I was 23 at that time. And it was right when the um, Bloomberg had was breaking down large high schools because they were not successful. The graduation rate at that point was about 40 to 50% per school. You had these large schools that had about anywhere from two to 4,000 students in a school and they didn't have, they, they weren't having the success. They weren't having success with, with the students. So what they did was they, they allowed people could write grants to open up small schools. They were basically phasing out the large schools and opening up these smaller schools within the large the the large school. So the school I the school that I started working at it was housed in Prospect Heights, and when I started there were when I started there I believe there were four schools that Prospect Heights was phasing out. So they didn't have a ninth grade the the September of two, two thousand and three. Instead, they had four other schools come in that just had a ninth grade, and then they broke up the building. So, and each school, each small school had its own administration and they had its own staff and they felt that the smaller setting would provide, would provide the students with better opportunities for success and better opportunities for graduation. And so, and what was the student body there? Um, was that? So it was, it was, I would say it was, you know, in Crown Heights, Prospect Heights is located on Classen Avenue. It was about 90 to not, about 90 to 92% African-American, probably about 85 to 88% economically disadvantaged students coming from economically disadvantaged homes. And so um, what was that like, um, you know, for communities that stay somewhat separate? It's interesting because I, I interviewed um, some Hasidic Jews 
who live in Williamsburg and they said in some ways they felt more comfortable with their black neighbors because they were in the projects with them and they sort of grew up together. They felt more connected to their black neighbors than some of their white non-Jewish neighbors. Um, I know Crown Heights obviously has a complicated history in terms of you know the Jewish and black community. Um, what was that like in terms of kind of breaking through the barrier of maybe not being around people from another community so much? How, and any stories in particular or any sort of moments where you think uh, you changed their opinion of Jews, uh, they changed your opinion of the black community? Um, it was definitely a, a big transition and it was a, you know, a, a shock at first. Um, I, there were a lot of things that I saw outside of the building or heard that I wasn't used to and I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily exposed to. Um, so that was something that, you know, definitely took time to get acclimated to. And um, the students were very receptive. I remember they would, you know, put respectfully and politely, they would ask me questions. And I'm a very open person, I would, you know, share with them. I know that, I know that um, I always, um, I'm a very ethical person and I'm a very fair person and I'm also very consistent. So it, that was something that the students really appreciated and they genuinely appreciated who I was as a person. And as a result, that made them think, you know, that made them think highly about Jewish people because they knew I was Jewish and I was, you know, very, um, I, I, I am a practicing Jew. So that, definitely held, you know, held Jewish people to a higher esteem in their eyes. And from that first class, it's, um, there's one, one student of mine who I still keep, keep, I still keep in close contact with. She just had a baby. We are very close. And um, this past summer was a big birthday for me. So she, she uh, got together some of the girls from that class and they made me a surprise party. And it was nice to, we actually went to Basil in Crown Heights, which is a kosher, kosher restaurant. And it was nice to see them. It, it'll be 18 years this September since I was their ninth grade teacher. It was very nice to see them and spend time with them. And, you know, I, I feel like my work in the, my work in the school community has definitely students have told me, parents have told me, and colleagues of mine have told me over the years that it's definitely changed their perception in a positive way about Jewish people. That's beautiful. Now, there was the reason that I, I heard what um, about you is because of um, a tragedy that happened last month. Um, there was a student uh, that you had that came to the, your school in ninth grade who you connected with uh, pretty uh, quickly and was you were a mentor to, and he tragically uh, was killed last month. So can you tell us a little about uh, the story about Keon? Yes, sure. So I had left the public school system in uh, 2008 when I had my twin daughters, I took a leave of absence. And then I returned in 2011. And at that point I was going for my administrative degree and an opportunity opened up at YCD, which is located at the Erasmus Hall campus. And I started, you know, I, part of my job was teaching high school math. 
And then I had the ninth grade students and in ninth grade, I had this young man, he was in my class and his name was Keon Gravenheist. And at that point I would teach the students, we had them for double period blocks. So they would be there for 90 minutes. And I, he sat in the back of the classroom and I just, you know, I could always see he had, he, he, I could tell that he was struggling and there was a lot going on, but he had, he truly had a beautiful soul and he wanted to do well and he wanted to succeed. He wanted to do well and he wanted to succeed in life. And over, over the course of the year, he would make some, mention some things to me. I remember at one point I was walking by his desk and maybe my, my skirt was pulled up a little bit. And he said, miss, he says, isn't your skirt supposed to cover your knee? <laughs> And he was just that type of a character, and but he was always respectful. And I remember one time he, I was walking by, and he said, you know, he said he he said he's like, you know, I wish something about like if if he could live with me or something. And I said, you know, that's not allowed or or whatnot. And um, he was a very respectful young man. His family, I mean, his older two brothers went to the school. They were each. A year older. So when he was in ninth grade and he was 14, his um, the brother right above him was in 10th grade, 15, and his oldest brother was in 11th grade, 16. But they had issues with, you know, certain things going on in the, you know, in the, in their community and the, and the, sh and the streets and whatnot. And, um, and I would speak to Keon sometimes after class, very briefly, but that, you know, we had a very, you know, we were, we connected. And yeah. then as he went on in 10th and 11th grade, he sort of, you know, he, he went on, I would see him in the hallways here or there. Um, and he was doing well, you know, he started playing football. He came to our school to play football. He loved playing football. And then in 12th grade, um, in 12th grade, the summer going into 12th grade, his oldest brother was shot and killed. Hmm. And it, you know, it, it, it was very, very difficult for him. And then he had, we had, we had a, uh, at that point we had um, counseling and schools works with us as a CBO where they provide uh, therapy and services to students in our community. And the person from that, some, something had happened with the budget and they weren't there full time. And, you know, that was, the, that was very hard because Keon was connected with the person working for them that was providing the, 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 the social and emotional support. So I realized um, it was, you know, I realized I would say probably in November time of his senior year that, you know, he had the potential to graduate high school. He was struggling because of the loss of his brother. He played football and he was captain of the football team, but football season was about to end. And I realized, you know, he really needed the support. So myself, you know, the head coach, me and the head coach of our school where we are a big football school is, uh, we're close. He's also Jewish and, um, we're, we're close and we work together to make sure that the, you know, the, the students from the program have all the supports they need academically, socially, emotionally, and that's for all the students in our school. Um, and we spoke about, we spoke about Keon and I, I, something just told me that I had to, I had to just involve myself more so that he can be successful and graduate high school. His other two brothers older than him did not graduate from high school. Mm. And me and him, we just, you know, we, we I, I was there, I supported him. You know, we set things up in place for him with his academics and socially and emotionally. And we were very close at graduation, you know, and he, 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 he really, 
he really persevered and it was hard for him. And then his, his, uh, sorry, in November, his second brother ended up getting arrested because he was, um, and now he's in jail. He, um, for avenging his, his older brother's death. And um, it was a very hard time for him because his brothers were truly his lifeline. He has other very supportive family members, grandmother, mom, wonderful people, wonderful family, but his brothers were really his lifeline and both of them were taken away from him in a short period of time and he was really struggling. So he persevered and I was, you know, I encouraged him. I, we, we set things up in place for him and he really, but he really, he really put his foot on the gas and got going and did what he had to do. And as a result, you know, he was successful. He did graduate on time, which was a beautiful accomplishment. And, you know, at graduation, that class was the first class I taught at YCD. So um, I said, I wanted to speak. I wanted to share some, you know, words with the class at graduation. So my principal um, had Keon introduce me and I remember when he came up and I didn't know he was introducing me. And when he came up, all the students in the, from the graduating class that were sitting there were, they were all chanting, Miss Silverstein's second son or Miss Silverstein's son or whatever they were saying, because we had grown, you know, we had that relationship had evolved. And after high school, you know, I, I worked with him. We tried other, other seeking out other venues for, college or career and at one point he did come back to the school and he did some work for a short period of time he played a big role in mentoring students um, up until the day he left this world he was still connected with students that were younger than him and they really respected him and he would you know he would tell he had a certain knowledge about life and about the world and he would he would give them real solid advice and they respected what he told them and he just really was a, a a role model like even yesterday a former student reached out to me and just said he was such a role model to me he he really truly cared about people just being successful and um he wanted to live an ethical life you know he 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 it took him three years but he he got a job at the postal office he persevered he did not he did not give up and um he got the job at the post office he worked six days a week long hours and i would try you know we were close we would get together every year for his birthday not exactly this was the first year we got together before the birthday and that's the way you know God wanted it, thank God. But we got together always for the birthday. We'd go out to dinner. This year we went, his favorite place was Reserve Cut, but we've been to the Reserve Cut. We've been to the Loft in Borough Park. Um, and, um, and then we would see each other also over the course of the year at other times. But, and I would FaceTime with him like every two to three weeks, we would speak just to check in and see how he was doing. And his job was not an easy job, you know, being a postal worker, the weather, the hours, the drain. And whenever I would call him, he was always smiling. Everyone, everyone knew that about him. They would always talk everything that he went through. He never let it get him down. He was always smiling. He was always happy. He was just such a positive person. And he was just such a positive person and such a caring person. He was just, you know, a, a wonderful, wonderful person. And we were close. I was his mentor in some ways, but I also considered him like, you know, my non, a non-biological child. He was very special. 
Don't really special. So you, you went out every year on his birthday, but this year it just worked out that you went out before and you were with him the night before he was killed. Is that correct? Right. So every year we would go out for his birthday, but sometimes we wouldn't go out even like till a month or two afterwards. And because of his job and his schedule and because of COVID, I, I just, I felt an urgency. So, you know, I said, and he had taken the week off. So, you know, he said either Monday or Tuesday and, you know, we, we made it happen. And it was, it was literally 26 hours. We were together about 26 hours before he passed away and before he, you know, the situation, what happened, he left this world. And, um, we spoke, we usually would go out, you know, it's two hours or whatever. We were there. He said, they're going to throw us out of here. We were there almost four, four hours. We were talking about everything, you know, um, we were talking about everything. He thanked me whenever I saw him, he always thanked me for who I was in his life, what I've done for him. He always told me that he wouldn't have been able to have accomplished what he had in life and to be the person that he was and doing what he was doing with, without without my without my help and my support um and you know i appreciate him telling me that and um he said to me you know he said to me he's like he said to me you know he says one day i'm gonna pay you back and i said you already paid me back and he says what do you mean and i said by just you know by just seeing you living the beautiful life the ethical life that you're living and applying yourself and doing what you're doing in life i said that's the biggest payment and the relationship also just saying, you know, have having the relationship that we had and being a part of his life and seeing his growth and development. And um, it's just, you know, it's just that that's the biggest, the biggest payback. And, you know, it's, uh, it's hard, you know, but uh, it was it was it was obviously a blessing from God that everything happened the way that it had. And I'm very thankful that we had, you know, it was almost 10 years that you know, I was able to be part of his life and he was able to be part of mine. And it was definitely, you know, definitely uh, a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm looking at the news story. So um, he was 24 when he was killed. Was this in a, a, a gang violence that he was shot? Would you know the specifics? And how did you find out about the story? We have about three minutes left. Yes. Um, so when he was, when he was, uh, when that happened, um, a bunch of people reached out to me and contact me, contacted me and um, I found out about it. And um, he was, no, he was not part of, he was not part of a gang. He did not carry a gun. He was not about that lifestyle. He lived that real ethical, honest lifestyle, you know, because of the family and certain things like that and who he was. He always, he, he, he always had to look over his shoulder. He always, he always was worried. Um, you know, it was just because of, you know, it was because of who, who, because of his name and the affiliate, you know, and, and that, but he was not, he was an ethical person, a good person, working hard, living an ethical life. Was this a, was this a random shooting that he was killed by, or was it targeted? Was it connected to his brother being killed and the brother in jail or? As far as I know, it was random. He was just somewhere. He was somewhere and someone, he, he got a phone call, he stepped outside, someone passed by, they recognized him, I guess, or whatever, and that was it. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It's terribly tragic. Um, just, I guess, in uh, our closing uh, moment, um, why would you recommend for anyone listening here to 
go outside your box of kind of the community that you deal with to meet people that maybe live life differently than you do or seem to be so different. What is the lesson in meeting, you know, human beings from another part of the world? Um, I'm not Lubavitch, but I do, you know, I have a lot of respect with the Lubavitch Rebbe, the, the last one, and I, um, you know, uh, at certain affiliations there. And he, when he spoke, he always said, every, every person is a creation of Hashem. It doesn't matter, you know, what you look like, what your culture is, what your background is. Every person here is a creation of Hashem's and everyone deserves to be treated the same. So that's always been my mentality wherever I've been in life, work, any other interaction. I always look at the person, every person has a neshama and every person is put on this world, in this world by Hashem for a specific reason. And everyone deserves to be treated with the same amount of respect, the same amount of love, you know, and sometimes we're placed in people's lives to be able to encourage them and guide them so that they can fulfill their purpose in this world. And that might be part of our purpose as well. So, you know, no one knows, no one knows the reasons for anything and, and nothing's random in this world. Everything happens for a reason. And Hashem put me and he puts other people in situations and uh, it's all, it's all what you make of the situation. And that's, you know, that's the impact that every person has on this, on this world and on people. Amazing. Razi Silverstein, Grunbaum, thank you so much for your time, for this beautiful story, for this beautiful message. Um, I'm touched and uh, I hope our listeners, I know our listeners will be, and I hope that it will impact the choices they make as well. Um, and we wish you continued uh, you know, success in inspiring these uh, youngsters that you're working with. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your time and thanks for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.